So have you found the perfect gift for that special someone yet this year? Here are a few ideas if you're still out looking. There is a puzzle that you can get for the puzzle lover in your life. It is called the Ravensburger Crypt Blank Puzzle. Yes, I use the word blank. 654 blank puzzle pieces. Now, if you've ever put a puzzle together, I mean, just marinate on that for a second. 654 blank puzzle pieces. Sounds like the mom who's sitting in the den with her friend, and she says, looking at her boy on the floor, you know, he's been working on that jigsaw puzzle for months now. I I don't have the heart to tell him it's a box of Lucky Charms. (laughs) You'll get it at lunch. It's all right. Or if not a puzzle, maybe you'll get someone the special gifts this year that are adult achievement stickers, like the ones that you get in kids' school. They hand them out when you do great things, but these are adult ones, and the adult ones say things like this, I was only 10 minutes late for work. I remembered to brush my teeth this morning. I consolidated my mortgage today. I ate salad. That's a good achievement sticker. Or a ribbon that says, first place in saying what we were all thinking. Maybe you've earned that ribbon this week. Or maybe none of those work. If so, go with the inflatable unicorn hat for your cat. A great crowd pleaser. Everybody will love it. Or get the onesie that says on the front, I still live with my parents. Either one of those will work, and you can pass it out to whoever's getting out to have a kid. Or maybe there's someone special in your life this year. They just really need to get nothing. Maybe that's what they need. They need absolutely nothing. An article out this week by Teresa Smith said this title, The Perfect Christmas Gift for Your Kid Might Be Nothing. This is what she writes. This time of year is exhausting for even the cheeriest of holiday revelers. But for young children who are experiencing all of this hoopla for the first, second, or third time, the flickering lights, sugar overload, and destruction of daily routines can become downright agonizing. She goes on. They show this in their behavior, so you can expect more testing and tantrums to go along with your Christmas cookies and stocking stuffers. That's why we go to Holland Avenue. The pastor always reminds us of the positive things of Christmas, tantrums and testing. So, why do parents have tantrums and testing in the Christmas days? She goes on. Children under six years old are constantly taking in information about their surroundings. Their young brains are working to learn as much as possible about the world, but can't yet filter out the noise and the chatter. So, the result is that children become overwhelmed much more quickly than adults. So is there anything a parent can do? She gives some advice. Keep tabs on them. Are they tired, hungry, thirsty, agitated, sugar-addled? All of these are natural reactions to the holidays for any person, let alone a young child whose brain is already in high gear. And then she gives this wise advice. Sometimes leaving the party may be the best way to help your child and yourself thrive during the busy season. There's a lot of truth in that advice. Sometimes you just got to go. And sometimes you buy the blank puzzle. And sometimes you buy the inflatable unicorn hat. Sometimes you go and you look for that gift. And maybe the best gift is that you just leave or maybe you don't even do anything. 
But I would say that there's another gift that you could give your family and friends this Christmas. In fact, it's the kind of gift that if you really start to think about it and look at how it works in your life, you might even hate it. (laughs) Like you don't want to have anything to do with it. And yet it could be the one key way that you can bring peace and love and joy into the life of your family and your friends this Christmas. So what is that one gift? Well, let's see if we can find out. Listen to Paul's letter to Philemon, beginning with verse 20. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul's writing to Philemon about a runaway slave named Onesimus. In ancient times, no doubt, there was cruelty, pain, and sin connected with slavery. But in Paul's day, there were also a number of people who actually sold themselves into slavery, maybe for no other reason than the the room and the board and the food, an opportunity to learn a a trade or a profession, uh, to receive an education even, so they could go on to be a teacher or a business manager or even a doctor. There were hundreds of slaves and servants in a house like Philemon's house. And Onesimus, the runaway slave that Paul's writing about in this letter, was one of Philemon's slaves. He was a runaway. Now, a house back then was kind of like a business. And so it's been estimated that that Philemon's house lost maybe $10,000 or more on Onesimus running away. And it's not just the money. That means everybody else in the house was impacted by that. They, they had to pick up the extra work. There was conflict. There was a bit of chaos. The laws and customs of the day allowed that Onesimus could have been arrested and jailed and even executed for running away. But Paul, over and over again in this letter, he keeps asking for Philemon. He requests, he pleads with him, hey, you know what? I want you to receive him, and I want you to forgive him. Why would he receive and forgive? Well, Onesimus ran more than a thousand miles away to the city of Rome, and he just happened to bump in to the Apostle Paul. Paul, the same Paul that led Philemon to Jesus. And then that same Paul shared the gospel with Onesimus, and Onesimus just happened to get saved because he ran into that Paul. And so Paul is is writing to Philemon. He's saying, look, I want you to receive Onesimus back. I want you to forgive him. I want you to do that instead of allowing him to be jailed or executed. And why? Why is Paul asking Philemon to do the opposite of what everything in society and culture and the laws and the customs would tell him to do? Well, he's doing it because Philemon and Onesimus are now brothers in Christ. They are part of the family of God. They are in the kingdom of heaven. Billy Graham said this, The Bible doesn't answer all our questions about heaven, but it does tell us that heaven will be a place of supreme happiness and joy. What kind of joy? He gives an opposite picture. The joy you get out of sports or anything else is insignificant compared with the joy God has in store for you in heaven. Then he said this, the greatest truth about heaven, however, is that we will be with God and with Jesus forever. See, the picture we have of heaven is it is greater than anything we can possibly imagine. 
I was in a restaurant last night, and every single person in the restaurant seemed to be breaking their neck to try to look at me. And I was like, stop, stop staring at me, quit it. Everybody just kept looking over at me. And then I realized that there was a TV above my head, and I didn't realize it, and, and they had the Heisman Trophy stuff going on, and I thought, oh, okay, so it's, it's really not about me. But, but everybody was just so zoned in and so tuned in. There's no Heisman Trophy in heaven. It's just, it's a thing. It's, it's an honor in this world, but, but it cannot compare to the supreme happiness and the supreme joy of eternity with Jesus. There is no comparison. So, are you confident and certain that if you die before you wake, that you have already prayed, the Lord your soul will take? Are you confident and certain that you really are a part of the family of God, that you really are a part of the kingdom of heaven, that you have truly repented and truly been saved? This is what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. What's the the will of God the Father in heaven look like in real life for a real person? Well, for Onesimus, it meant that he was a thousand miles from nowhere. And boy, he was trying to disappear, trying to start over. And the grace of God found him. And the mercy of God came running after him. And he was rescued and he was redeemed from the penalty of his sin. He was saved from the everlasting terrors of hell. And the will of God the Father in heaven for him was to go home and to plead for mercy and to ask for forgiveness, to confess and to repent. And about 1900 years ago, Onesimus died. And he said, Lord, Lord. And Jesus said, well done. Welcome home. Enter into your rest. That's why Philemon needed to receive his runaway slave and take him back and show him mercy and forgive him. The same mercy that found Philemon had found Onesimus. Has that mercy found you? If you've received the mercy of Jesus, you will show mercy. Not perfectly, you won't, but steadily and consistently you will show mercy. This is not a fairy tale we're talking about. This is not biblical legend. Real guy named Philemon, real guy named Onesimus, real guy named Paul. These these are real people. This is a real story. And the real story connected to the guarantees of the gospel tell us that right now, as we sit in this room, Philemon and Onesimus are enjoying the supreme happiness and joys of heaven with Jesus forever. This is what's happening. So, So the end of the story actually is pretty amazing. There was conflict, and now there is just supreme happiness and joy. That kind of togetherness doesn't just start in heaven, though. That, that kind of togetherness, it, it starts now. Listen again to what Paul said to Philemon. 
Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Early in this letter, after he became a believer, Paul saw that Onesimus was super cool for him. He, he was really helpful to his ministry. In fact, he was so helpful, he was kind of hoping that maybe not only would Philemon forgive him, but he'd kind of release him, send him to Paul, let, let him stay with Paul, let him help full time with the ministry. The irony of that's kind of funny, right? An escaped convict was helping a jailed prisoner who was in prison for the gospel. So Onesimus went from being a runaway slave, and think about this, a runaway slave in those days was always dodging the law, always looking over his shoulder, always one step closer to being caught and taken back and jailed or executed. He went from that to being rescued and redeemed and adopted into the family of the Most High God. That's an amazing change of story. I don't know what your story is today. I don't know what your story has been in the past or what your story is now. Actually, I know a lot of your stories, come to think of it. But the truth is you may feel like your story is not working right now or that it has not happened right. And I just want you to know there was a guy who was always looking over his shoulder and the grace of God found him and the mercy of God ran to him and he became part of the kingdom of God. So much so that he refreshed the heart of maybe the best Christian who ever lived on the earth. That's a tall task, right? He refreshed Paul's heart. Let me ask you a question. Are you refreshing anyone's heart these days? Are you going out of your way to refresh someone? Or are you the kind of person that takes away refreshment? (laughs) Are you the kind of person that when you walk into the room, there's this kind of mean, angry, cranky, whiny, apathetic, unloving, uncaring aroma that takes away all the fresh air of the room? Yeah, don't be that, you know? They say it's the most wonderful time of the year with kids jingle-belling and everyone telling you to be of good cheer. So how's your cheer? If you've received the mercy of Jesus, then you got a lot of cheer to give. You may not feel like it, but the very definition of your salvation means that you can be cheery because you are saved, you are redeemed. The supreme happiness and joy of heaven is there waiting, and it's also part of your life today because you've been rescued, because you've been adopted into the family of God. Paul is asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus, because if he does, not only will Onesimus refresh his heart, but Philemon's going to refresh his heart as well. And why would he think Philemon would do anything like this? Earlier in the letter, this is what he said, verses 4 and 5. I thank my God because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Philemon was a refresher. It's, it's who he was. It's what he was known for. What are you known for? I, I fear I am known way too much for bacon. It's just, I don't know, it's probably getting a little out of hand. But hey, loving bacon's wrong. I don't want to be right. (laughs) 
As Paul sat in prison, here's all he knew about Philemon. This, This was the news that he was getting on Philemon. His faith in Jesus was strong. His love for Christians was real. And his habit, his habit was to refresh other people. Listen, if you profess to be a believer, that that has to be your story too. You have to be known as someone who's loving God and loving others. That's the definition of the gospel. Paul was not going to ask Philemon to wait and love later. He wasn't going to ask him to to refresh later. Hey, when you guys get to heaven, y'all, you love and refresh Onesimus. No, he's going to say, I want you to do it right now. He's asking him to do right now what he was already doing. He was already diligent to love and serve the other folks in the church and and other believers and even complete strangers. It was the habit for him to be kind and gracious to other believers. And guess what? Now his runaway slave is a believer. So Paul's going to say, look, you need to refresh Onesimus. You need to encourage him. But again, this is out of character. This is not what his parents would tell him to do. This is not what his grandparents would tell him to do. This is not what his neighbors or his pastors or his politicians or the customs and laws of the land would tell him to do. They would not tell him to refresh his runaway slave. It was out of character for the culture, but it was not out of character for Philemon. He was a refresher. It was what he was known for. Who could you refresh this Christmas? Your spouse, your kids, your parents, your sister, your brother, aunt, uncle, maybe some friends, a neighbor, maybe even your local politician, local policeman, local fireman. Maybe you can refresh a a fellow classmate or a fellow workmate, a fellow church member. Maybe you can refresh the, the church staff or person that does your pest control. Maybe you can refresh those people that are behind you in line at the turn signal by just being ready to go when it turns green. Really, for the sake of Pete, let's do that, okay? Yeah, just, just be ready when the light turns green. It's, it's a good thing. That's very refreshing. <laughs> for our church family, there's a lot of different people you could refresh, but I'm just going to give you a, a huge, gigantic, practical one you can refresh right here. You could refresh Sherry Wisnett. You could refresh her. She's back in the Midlands now. She's over at Encompass Health next to Palmetto Richland. It's been a a big journey uh, these last three weeks, and, and the journey continues. You can refresh her by praying for her, and you can refresh her by going to visit her. If, if visiting's not something you normally do, that's all right. We're going to have a quick little crash course here. Here's all you got to do. Find out where the person is. Go over to the lobby. Give the name. They'll give you the room number. When you get down to the room, if you don't know them, no big deal. Just go in and introduce yourself. Hey, my name's Freddie Stubbs. Most everybody calls me Rerun. I go to Holland Avenue, and, and I just wanted to say hey to you and just, just tell you that, you know, I'm praying for you and, and just wanted to come visit. You don't have to recite Bible verses You don't have to pray long prayers. You don't have to stay long. You don't have to bring gifts of gold and frankincense. You know, you you just don't have to do, you can do all those things. Maybe not frankincense, but, you know, you can do all those things. But but a short visit is is fine. It's It's just a short visit of mercy, a short note of mercy, a short prayer of mercy. You know, Sherry has said that people visiting would probably boost her spirits. But, you know, other times people don't want anybody in there, right? 
I mean, you don't feel good. You got that paper robe on and that's all you're wearing. You know, you don't want a lot of people coming up in the room, you know. And so when it comes to visiting people, sometimes you just got to play it by ear. You know, you, you just have to kind of go with the flow. Paul is not playing any of this by ear. He's, he's writing to Philemon with purpose. He's wanting Philemon to do something major. He's not just asking him to go visit someone who's had life-altering cancer surgery. He's asking him to forgive someone who has cost him money, who's lied to him, who stole from him, who did him wrong. That's a different kind of request. But, But don't miss the picture. Don't miss the scene. Onesimus is not just a runaway slave anymore. He's a believer. Paul is asking Philemon to forgive someone who is repentant. They are truly repentant. Onesimus is coming home saying, I was wrong. Please forgive me. What if it's the opposite, though? What if the situation is completely different? What if you're trying to forgive someone who refuses to repent? What if you're forgiving someone who refuses to own up to their sin? That's a little harder, isn't it? Heath Lambert addressed that question. He's a a pastor, a counselor. A couple of years ago on a a podcast, I'm going to put a link to the podcast and the transcript at the bottom of my notes on the website later today so you can go see the whole thing. But I I just want to give a couple of snippets of how he answers that question of, well, how do you forgive someone when they refuse to repent? This is what he said. I think we can think of forgiveness on the one hand as an action that transpires in a relationship. Important words. Something that happens between two people, all right? There's a transpiring here. There's someone who's repenting and asking for forgiveness, confessing sin, and then there's someone who's forgiving. That's, that's a transpiring relationship. That's one aspect of forgiveness. And then he says a second part, and we can think of forgiveness on the other hand as an attitude that we cultivate in our soul. What does that mean? What does it mean to cultivate an attitude of forgiveness in your soul? He explains it this way. It is the willingness to extend forgiveness. We settle the matter in our heart whether or not they are sorry, whether or not they are repentant, whether or not they have asked, or whether or not they have remained silent. Well, that sounds super easy to do, right? (laughs) No, it doesn't. It sounds very difficult. But as believers, we've been called to cultivate an attitude of forgiveness so that we can be ready to forgive as the opportunity arrives. Now, that doesn't mean that we just throw forgiveness out like it's candy at the Christmas parade. There's a little more to this. Lambert goes on. Just as true as it is that we have a command to forgive those who have, I'm sorry, I'm reading that wrong. Just as true as it is that we have a command to forgive, Those who have sinned have a command to confess and repent of their sin from all involved parties, including you, if you're the one they've sinned against. This is the call, especially as believers. We we have to own it. We can't just sit around and say, well, you have to forgive me. You're a Christian. Well, yeah, and no. It's a transpiring of a relationship here. There's two things that have to happen for full and complete forgiveness to take place. 
He goes on to say this, and so we need to withhold that extension of the action of forgiveness until the person has done what God wants them to do by confessing their sin. And he says this, that is actually a way to serve them and to be kind to them and to help them honor God's law. Now, withholding forgiveness, that that just sounds like weird language, right? That that sounds non-Christian. But put it down in the middle of this conversation about Philemon and Onesimus. So let's say that, that Onesimus runs off to Rome, he meets Paul, he hears the gospel, but he rejects the gospel. He has nothing to do with the gospel. He doesn't get saved. And then he gets caught by the Roman authorities. And he gets brought back to Philemon, and he is kicking and screaming. He's mad. Now, as a believer, Philemon, he's already been cultivating an attitude of forgiveness. He's been cultivating that, that attitude of refreshing and showing mercy. But Onesimus, boy, he's difficult. He's rebellious. He's loud. He's mad. Or he's quiet and he's mad. He, he gives the silent treatment when he gets back. He won't even talk to Philemon. He's stiff-necked. He's defiant. And he's unrepentant. You know, there are people who have never, ever been to a church who are stiff-necked and defiant and unrepentant toward God and toward other people. And there are people who never miss a Sunday who are stiff-necked and defiant and unrepentant toward God and other people. And the picture we have here is that a candidate for forgiveness is someone who is not stiff-necked and defiant and unrepentant. For a relationship to transpire, there has to be forgiveness and there has to be repentance. If there's no repentance, the relationship is being defied. See, that's, that's the picture of us and God too there, right? God didn't just throw out forgiveness like candy at a parade. Repentance is necessary. And so there's a balance between these two things. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. And then he said this back in, over in Matthew 11. He's, he's getting on to, to some of the cities who were rejecting him. And this is what Matthew writes about Jesus. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. So those cities were rejecting, they were unrepentant, they were stubborn, they were stiff-necked, they were defiant, so they weren't receiving any forgiveness because they were kicking it away. Jesus was very serious about repentance, and Jesus is very serious about repentance. And so if we're going to be a believer, then, then we have to be cultivating an attitude of repentance so that when we wrong someone, we are ready to confess and, and ready to repent, ready to make that relationship transpire the way it's supposed to so things can be right. And likewise, if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, we have to be cultivating an attitude of forgiveness so that we are ready when someone comes and truly repents and confesses. We're ready to engage, to transpire in that relationship. Neither side can hold back. Each must be cultivating. Now, does that sound like something easy to do? No. Does that sound like all of that cultivation is easy to manage with an unrepentant spouse or an unrepentant child or an unrepentant parent? With an unrepentant sister, unrepentant brother, unrepentant aunt or uncle, unrepentant church member? 
No, it doesn't sound like anything easy to manage. But here's the thing. It probably was not easy to leave the supreme happiness and joy of heaven for a smelly stable in Bethlehem. It probably wasn't easy to have the entire universe created through you and for you, but to suppress that authority to run the family carpenter shop. And it probably wasn't easy to be tortured and brutally executed for the holy rebellion and wrongdoing of other people. But you see, Jesus, from the manger to the cross to the tomb, out of the tomb, Jesus did the not easy stuff so that we could be forgiven and free. That's where Paul's pulling Philemon. Come on, Philemon, get get in this conversation. Listen to what he says next, verse 21. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Here's the best Christmas present you can get anybody this Christmas. All right? Here it is. Obedience. Obedience. That's the best gift you can give. You can't get it on Amazon. You you can't get it at Best Buy. But your obedience to God is the best gift that you can give this Christmas. Why? Because God uses your obedience to bring peace and love and joy into the lives of others. It's hard to do the math on. It's, it's hard to explain, but, but it's what God does. He can use your obedience to bring some measure of joy and peace and love to your spouse and to your kids and to your parents and to your friends and to your church. But don't forget the underbelly of that truth because it's true too. If you are not obedient... If you refuse to repent, if you hang on to your sin, if you stubbornly refuse to own up to it, then you will bring some measure of pain and hurt and stress and chaos and conflict to your spouse and to your kids and to your parents, to your friends and to your church and even in the community. And if you refuse to forgive, then you will bring some measure of stress and pain and hurt and conflict on your spouse, on your kids, on your parents, on your friends, and on your church. Why was Paul confident that Philemon would do even more than he was asking? I mean, you know, if you're a parent or grandparent, man, sometimes you just hope your kids obey something, you know, just something. But Paul said, man, Philemon, I know you're going to obey. I know you're going to do. I'm confident you're going to do even more. Why was he so confident? Because see, Philemon knew the story. Philemon knew that, that Jesus had appeared in the manger. Philemon knew that Jesus had appeared on the cross. Philemon knew that Jesus had appeared out of the tomb. And so Philemon was in the habit of forgiving and repenting and refreshing, going above and beyond normal obedience. He was doing more 
because he had discovered in his life the truth that Jesus had done the most for him. I think this whole letter from Paul, it sounds a bit like a, a prelude to one of our most treasured holiday songs. It goes like this. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining. Love that word. I, I picture Onesimus in Rome. He's escaped, he's free, but he's trapped. He's looking over his shoulder. He's pining away in what he thought was freedom, and he wasn't free at all. He was still sitting in all of his sin. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. I would love to know that moment of how Onesimus and Paul met. And how the conversation began where Paul said, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. And all of a sudden, Onesimus, his heart that was chained, the chains were set free. He heard about the appearing of Jesus, and he had no worth in his mind as a slave. But all of a sudden, in a moment, the Holy Spirit gave him worth in Jesus. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary soul rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Imagine the day after Onesimus got saved. Imagine that moment. He's running away, he's trapped, he's chained. And all of a sudden, he's set free. His soul was not weary anymore. His soul rejoiced. And the next morning, it was all new. It was all new. Friend, listen, we've, we've got a few weeks in the holiday season. And then we have really the rest of our lives to repent and to forgive and to live in such a way that we might be a part of a lot of other people's new and glorious morn simply because over and over and over again we are coming to worship and adore Christ, the newborn 